where the base camp was not really dangerous. It started to be a bit more dangerous when we slept inside the volcano for several days. So you sleep with your gas mask, you have, um, you know, you have your tent, you have everything, but um, it's almost like a rocking chair because the earth always shakes very, very slowly, but the earth shakes. Welcome to Out of Adventuring, the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys. They not only take us through their hardships and highlights, but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life. Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective and today with me is Ola Lohmann. Ola is a German filmmaker and photographer who has worked with BBC, National Geographic, Geo, Red Bull, just to throw some names out there. And she is known for making incredible shots of nature and incredible videos of particular volcanoes and erupting volcanoes. And not from the distance with a huge lens, but she goes deep into volcanoes. Actually, one of her biggest dreams and one of her desires was to climb into a volcano. So she actually spent the night inside a volcano. That sounds absolutely terrifying and pretty wonderful because obviously the images and the videos that come out of those expeditions are absolutely mind-blowing. But for Ola, it's not only about the nature and the beauty of an erupting volcano. Uh, it's more so about the people who live around these volcanoes, who are in constant danger, often living on remote islands in the South Pacific. And she connects with them, lives with them, and has recently also published a book focusing especially on people living around volcanoes. To be one of the best volcano photographer and videographer doesn't come easily and for Ulla it was a lifelong dream and it took her over a decade to even get close to being where she is now. Now her life sounds a bit like a dream going from expedition to expedition and all of them are completely different so she spends the precious time she has at home researching and preparing for the next big trip. Well my life is an adventure so I have constantly trips and they are all very different in their challenges. I'm specialized in active volcanoes But uh, sometimes the active volcanoes can be covered in ice and sometimes they can be amidst the hottest places on the planet. So I have to prepare for every volcano very different. I have to say um, research is a key part for most of my things. So the better you know a volcano, the more you read about it, the better you know the people around it, the better your images. So whenever I prepare for a trip, I... Um, ask the people and I take time on location. So that's probably why mm. I've never even returned from an expedition in my mind. I'm still on the first trip around the world, what, the one I started when I was 18 years old, because I always take so much time with the people on the location. Yeah. And I guess you also need a lot of time just for the conditions to to be right. Not, I guess not only for the picture, but especially for pictures, if there's a cloudy day and, and so on. But I mean, you also vulnerable to just a volcano doing the thing you expect them to do like erupt maybe it doesn't always happen exactly when you plan it to to happen well you can employ a volcano whisperer 
it's not a joke. His name is Zack Zack, and he really exists on the island of uh, Ambram in Vanuatu. But you can also look on webcams. You can look on thermal images. There are companies, they do uh, like um, research uh, universities. They do satellite imageries from all around the world. So you know pretty much which volcano mm. is active and uh, you can go to those. So usually when I go to a volcano, I know what it's doing. So I don't have to sit for ages um, for, to wait for it to erupt. But I have to wait for a long time for the conditions to be right. For example, I spent four weeks sitting in a base camp in the pouring rain because the volcano also creates its own weather. When the hot gases are coming coming up, the clouds condensate. So it was raining just on top of the volcano where we wanted to go and also to upsail into it. And all around it was beautiful weather. So I had to wait in the rain for a very long time. So this is actually a real challenge for the conditions for the photographs to be right. Now, I jump right at it and ask the question probably a lot of people have. You have base camp at and around an active volcano. That sounds like a very dangerous place to to live or to camp for for a month. So how how dangerous are volcanoes actually? Well, the base camp was not really dangerous. It started to be a bit more dangerous when we slept inside the volcano for several days. What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's also you sleep with your gas mask, you have um you know, you have your tent, you have everything, but um, it's almost like a rocking chair because the earth always shakes very, very slowly, but the earth shakes. So I love sleeping in an active volcano, actually. And it's practical okay. because at night you don't need a torch. Uh, yeah, and you're probably not cold. No, but expect. to answer your questions, volcanoes are not that dangerous if you choose the right ones at the right moment and if you monitor them for a long period over time. So you, I mean, you are quite sure of what you're doing and you you know, don't just jump into any volcano and uh, hope, hope that all goes well. But when you sleep down there... I did this there, at the beginning of my career. Oh. <laughs> and was, how, did, how did that go? How did that go? I was very, very, very lucky. Um, I mean, I was completely ignorant. The locals in Papua New Guinea, they warned me. I was um, 19 at that time or 20. And the locals told me the volcano is erupting. You can't go up. And I said, but I want to see. And uh, I should have listened. So I went, I saw, and I saw, I looked down in the volcano and I saw that the bombs, that's how you call the lava the stones. They were coming mm -hmm. out. It was almost like a fountain of a little river and it looked really pretty but all of a sudden it made like boom and the entire mountain went on fire it was like a movie wow. and i was in the middle of it i could just hear the bombs falling all around me and i know that the lava is 1200 degrees hot if one of those stones would have hit me i would not be here today okay that sounds lucky and uh maybe a bit naive Right at the at that you know, I not from the age perspective, but being uh, you know against the warning of the people who live there, who know the mountains. Um, I mean, we've all been there, we've all done these things, but it sounds really lucky that you 
that you came back from from that one? I also studied volcanology. So I did natural resource management. I studied in Australia, so I could be closer to my volcanoes. And I studied the local language, so I could better communicate with the people on location to understand how they live with the volcano, how I can go to the volcano. So I started to dedicate my life to these fire mountains. And you mentioned now the Pacific region a bit. Is that for you a very particular region of volcanoes that you say this is this is kind of what you just said, my area. This is these are my volcanoes where where I feel I belong to the most because there are you know volcanoes all over the place. Or how, how come that region is so in focus? There is very little known about the volcanoes in that part of our world. I mean the Etna The Stromboli volcano, the European volcanoes, they have so mm. many sensors, so much surveillance. It's really, really well done. But those volcanoes, nobody has money to fund research there because there are not that many people living around it. And, um, you know, there's just not much research going on. So I thought this is a very great opportunity for me to study and also to communicate about how important it is to combine scientific knowledge with local knowledge. Because in Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, the locals, they also know their volcano really well. They don't necessarily only listen to the research institutes, or better, they don't listen to them at all. They have their own ways to talk with the volcanoes. And we can learn from them, and they can learn from us. And it's a beautiful region as well. I don't know if you've ever been to the South Pacific. It is very beautiful. I have seen pictures maybe you know of people like you who make beautiful pictures and um i really want to go but of course when you say south pacific you think of fiji tahiti and you know trees and you know beautiful beautiful water so i, I guess not a lot of people associate this region with volcanoes and it's and born through the fire that, that is true that is true i mean when you i guess i think yeah when you look at uh, the seismic maps or you know you can actually see how This is exactly the region where a lot of the active volcanoes are actually situated. Very correct. It's the Pacific Rim of Fire, starting from New Zealand, going all along the east coast of Australia, outside the islands. There's like a chain of volcanic islands and New Caledonia, Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea Islands. All this is in the same kind of line going all the way to Japan and then all the way on the other side it goes down again yeah wonderful i mean it must be must be a fantastic region and i think by now it became clear you really like volcanoes uh, you a little a little bit yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and despite you having quite i would say quite a scary you know experience um what you've just described where you were actually quite lucky to get off that volcano your your love for these mountains started pretty early and then kind of stuck like how, how did it all come about that you were so fascinated by volcanoes i was eight when my father did a very big mistake he took me to pompeii so i could see the effects of the vesuv volcano it erupted and it destroyed the entire city so i was very intrigued by this force of nature And from this moment, I was reading and studying everything I could about volcanoes. Of course, also Jules Verne, The Journey to the Center of the Earth. It's a great book. And I wanted yeah. to see a real volcano myself and also go to the center of the earth one day. 
So when I was 19 years old, I uh, was on a trip around the world when I was 18. I started a trip around the world because I got money from a German science competition because I was interested in earth science through that mm -hmm. interest for volcanoes. And I was the very first uh, who ever found uh, almost 300,000 year old fossil. I worked three years on the reconstruction all the time in the mud, in the dirt, with stones, with the ground. But for me, it was really nice. And then after three years, I got uh, Jugend Forsch to Bundessieg. It's the first prize. And I got enough money to finance a trip around the world, also on the search for volcanoes. So on this trip, I ended up in Vanuatu. And I was not uh, stopping until I stood on top of a volcano and I could see the lava. Okay, now now I think uh, we start to understand why you were so adamant about going up that volcano. It you didn't happen just to be there and see the volcano. It was it was on your map, and that was part of the goal the whole time to be up there. Yes, I think already from a very little age, I was completely determined. I always loved photography. I always loved writing stories. So during the trip around the world, I did a blog in a magazine, and I was always writing my experiences. And I knew what I wanted to do. So the moment when I stood on top of the volcano, I thought this would be my dream come true. But it was not because it was the beginning of a much bigger dream because the lava lake was 600 meters down and it was not enough. It was not the journey to the center of the earth. For me, it was just, okay, that's it. No. So I started to dream to be the first one on the planet to upsell down to the lava lake because what I learned that nobody else has done it before. So I was dreaming of being the first one to upsell down. But to realize this dream, I just um, not really know how much of a big journey I was getting into. It sounds like a massive goal of being being the first one, I think, to accomplish anything that has to do with nature. Um, is quite a big, quite a big goal that you that you've set yourself. How did you go about it? I mean, I, a little spoiler. I know you've achieved it at the end. But how how did you how how did you do that? How did you get off with making this come true? Well, it was not only that I wanted to go into the volcano as the first one, but I also wanted to photograph for National Geographic. So, oh, nice. You know, like ambitious goals, of course. But I brought the goal down in small steps. So to learn how to photograph better, I was cooking for an expedition for National Geographic. So I basically started off as a host, as a cook. I was lucky that I could cook, more or less, but that's how I learned to photograph or to carry tripods. I learned from very, very great photographers, especially from one, Karsten Peter. When I was 19, I learned from him I could cook for his expedition. So then second, I thought it's not, it's good to go down, but it's also good to come up. So I learned how to rock yeah. climb. During this uh, goal, I actually also met my husband, Basti. He's now my husband. Back then he was uh, my climbing partner. And uh, he also proposed to me inside the active volcano. Wow. Pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, I could not refuse because I was afraid that I would end up in the lava lake. This is, so, this yes. is genius. If you, if you propose to your partner and you know, if you 
kind of have to say yes, otherwise what was it blackmail. Was, it was definitely. I never thought I would get married, but in this situation, I had no other choice. <laughs> no, I'm very glad that I said yes. But you don't have to get married to do an expedition like this, but you have to find the right partners because mm. that's also very key to go down and to achieve something like this because you can't do it on your own. So I partnered with a local volcanolo volcanologist, Thomas Boyer. I partnered with uh, local people, with Zack Zack, the volcano mm. whisperer. And uh, with some other friends on location, which who helped me to carry the equipment, who helped me to uh, install the ropes. There's so much logistics involved. Yeah. And then I saved money because nobody wanted to sponsor an expedition. Everybody said, are you crazy? And I said, no, it's okay. I mean, I can do it. But of course, nobody did believe me. So I saved almost 12,000 euro on my own and I spent it on the first trip because it was raining when we were inside the volcano and when the rain falls through the hot gases it becomes mm. acid because the gases are acid so mm. then it destroys completely the climbing rope and we were halfway in the volcano and uh, we had to abandon so that was actually pretty sad all the money was gone, the ropes, everything was gone. But this is also something I learned as one of the steps on the way, never give up. So we knew that it was possible. We had some images and we applied the next year for another round. And uh, we could do an article. We got a sponsored expedition for science reasons. And we finally, finally could do it after I learned all these things and also the local language. I learned also the local language to talk with the people. That is something probably completely underrated that you can immerse yourself in that culture. Um, a lot of a lot of things. First of all, well, acid rain in a volcano while you're climbing, it just you know, I, I like how you previously said it's it's not so dangerous. It's actually okay. And then, you know, you have acid rain eating off your rope. Um, how, how long did that journey now take from you standing there having your goal, this is my dream, to then you actually made it to be the first um, person or you were pretty much on time with your with your partner? You two were the first to actually make it down there? Almost 15 years. 15. Almost. 15. Or even, yeah. Yeah, a long time. <laughs> yeah, it it is, and I think this this is the one the wonderful piece of it that it, it when you when you tell the story, it sounds a little bit like yeah, you know, it was two or three years saving some money, cooking for for a month, and then off you go. Um, a lot of persistence. I also did choose my study topic because of this, and um, I did spend much of my time in the South Pacific. I was living in Australia, so to have the volcanoes close by. So I dedicated a lot of my life for this situation, but uh, it all made sense. And I trusted my feeling because I had this um, feeling inside me. I mean, I'm sure you also know when you have a topic and when you have a situation, it's like uh, your little hair is standing and you have like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And it's almost like uh, you are in love with something. You have this thrill. And you're like, this is something for me. 
And whenever this passion hits you, because this is when you have passion for something, whenever this passion hits you, what I learned is to always follow that passion. Because with this passion, all the rest, it will be easy. It never seemed like work. It never seemed like I would dedicate a lot or sacrifice a lot of things. It always felt like uh, this is what I want to do. It is a little bit like you have your clear goal, you have your life goal and everything you do, it doesn't really matter what you do as long as it kind of pays towards achieving that goal in, in the end. Is that, how you, is that how you felt when you were doing all these little puzzle pieces? Definitely, definitely. And I have to say, I mean, I love nature. I love uh, to see that force of nature. And whenever I looked the first time into the lava lake, when I was young and standing on top of the rim, even the lava lake was still far away. I was completely intrigued by the power of the earth. And I still think the world would be a much better place if more people would be on top of an active volcano, would see that power of the earth. Because it makes you feeling that we are very, very small as human beings, but still we can be here. We should do everything we can to protect this fragile environment we are in. And But we are very happy to be given this life. So I think life is a very big present. And this is something I learned when I was at the volcano. And this is something I also want to communicate with my images to enjoy life. So whenever you have a clear goal, a clear vision like this, everything else is very, very easy. I never worked in my entire life. I always do what I love. So I never worked. This is, yeah, the, this is the dream coming true for pretty much everyone, isn't it? And you also sound like you you managed to um, avoid this, I don't want to say problem, but the situation many people have that if they love something and suddenly this becomes their job, maybe a painter or something, you know, and then suddenly you rely on actually being successful at what you do, that you suddenly stop enjoying it. Um, but it sounds like you never had that. You, even though it is your profession and this is, you know, how you, how you live, you enjoy every second of it. I think because also I never did a job for the money. I have uh, sometimes I, when I do like motivational speeches, I get an enormous like enormous you don't even want to know i get an enormous fee for just 45 minutes of talking or even 50 minutes of talking like the ted talks i've done ted talk so it's crazy and other jobs um i get asked for doing advertisement for people um i refuse because i don't like and other jobs i do it just because i enjoy the fun of it i don't charge i don't do it you know i don't even look at the money i don't care you know, it's just, if I want to do something, I do it, but I don't look on the money side, whether it's for like, you know, my photographs, if somebody likes my photographs, don't ask me how many photographs in my entire life I gave out for free. I still do today. How many Instagram profiles, how many Facebook pictures they are done from my photographs, what I take of people. It's my pleasure. I love it. I enjoy it. So, um, yeah, for me... The key thing is that I'm not motivated by the money. I don't care about the money. I always think money comes. I always give uh, tips. I always try to like deal with friends on on a fair base, and like you know, I share money. So what goes around comes around. That's what I believe. Yeah, it's a it's a great way to live. Absolutely. Um, 
you've learned a lot, I guess, also from the people in these in these areas. You've you've mentioned that a little bit that you actually immersed yourself quite intensely um, with those communities who live at the volcanoes. How 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 is that? How are they different or the same than than other people that that don't live in in this very unique environment? I have to say you're very right. I did share house and louse with a lot of people already. For me, the camera is like a door opener to the hearts of people. And what mm. I found that people who live around active volcanoes, they are often much more interesting than the volcanoes itself. I mean, it's exciting, an active volcano. I mean, I love it. This is my job. But the people who live with an active volcano, this is something where I can learn a lot for myself. Because all around the world, I just published a new book about volcano people. All around the world, the communities living around active volcanoes, they have to have a deeper sense of nature. Because the volcano can destroy their livelihood any second, but also the volcano mm. gives them life. It makes the ground fertile, it gives tourism. There are a lot of things coming with volcanoes. So I did study those people. I did live with them and I did learn from them. And it's very, very, very interesting how deeply they feel connected to nature and how much they have to observe their volcano and to observe mm. nature. And sometimes in our world, we don't even look up to see the sky. Did you look up to see the sky today? No. Oh. I haven't. Really? I haven't. Um, been no, that's not true. I've been outside, so I don't. I, I cannot even say I've been stuck inside all day. I've actually been outside, but I didn't look up. It was raining, so you're right. You know, uh, I, I was. I was. You know, I look up when there's sun, but you know, if it's raining, I'm like, oh no, it's not even worth it. But if you depend on this look into the sky. Mm -hmm you look different at nature because you look at different signs. You look at the birds. You look at the clouds. You stand still and you take five minutes to look at the sky if your life depends on seeing these little signs of warning, of eruptions. The birds behave different. The animals behave different all around the world. On Etna Volcano, they put sensors on goats and sheep because they predict volcano eruptions on Stromboli volcano. All this is in Italy. It's very close to us. On Stromboli volcano, they have octopus. They can predict a volcano eruption. To go further away, in Papua New Guinea, they have like a little chicken. It lays the eggs into the volcanic soil. And the higher it lays the eggs on the soil, it can dig up to two meters deep. But when it lays the eggs on top of the soil, it means that the ground is too hot for the volcano to incubate the eggs. And this, the locals observe, and they know that the volcano eruption is close. If you would depend on those signs, I'm sure you would look up at the sky much different. I'm 100% sure. And do you think people like that? Uh, of course, in our Western world, we don't need to necessarily look up in the sky, except for should I bring a rain jacket or not? But do you think like people lack that connection to nature significantly? We look at our mobile phone. We look at the weather forecast. We don't even look up in the sky. And yes, I do think that we lack this connection with nature. Unfortunately, but we don't also need it as much as the others do. But I think more connection with nature would be so good for everybody because also 
it would make us enjoy life more. Because when I'm outside, no matter if it's uh, at my hometown south of Munich, home, hometown, home village south of Munich, or if it's on the top of an active volcano, whenever I look outside and I see little things in nature, a flower, a bird, I get happy. Nature makes us happy and it gives us pleasure to enjoy little things in life. And often we get too caught up in the small things of our busy daily life, what we think is very important. If you look at the global scale, at what volcanoes also teach you, because they teach us that we're nothing, on a global scale, these problems probably don't matter that much. So it puts things in perspective when we go out to nature and also when we look at little things, it gives us the smile. At least it gives me the smile when I see a little bee and a flower. I don't have to go to the furthest planet, uh, furthest corner of our planet. I think the mm. garden is already fine enough. I think this is one of the most underrated skills anyone can have is feeling gratitude in front of your doorstep. You know, going going out and seeing, and nature is such a wonderful provider of beauty and of this gratitude. Me, me included. I try very, very hard to be more grateful about nature, but we've just discussed I heavily failed today by you know looking up in the sky and being like ah it's raining but i think photography is teaching that to us i mean look at the pleasure we get when we take great macro photographs for macro photographs when you go really close to something you don't have to go anywhere else and also for taking photographs of your family i mean how often do you do this i think it's really nice also to make a real photo shoot with your family or photograph little things around. And then, you know, I guess through the camera, I see things different because I capture mm. things for the eternity. And I only want to capture things which are beautiful, which talk to me, which make me happy. So this is also a way of looking at things when you photograph. Yeah, you can pay way more attention to uh, the, tini the tiniest detail. And probably you, you, you spend hours on trying to get the right image of things where people just usually pass by and like, oh God, what, what's she even looking at? You know, maybe let's take a quick snap, you know, with your iPhone and okay, there's a tree and less and less people maybe go really deep into this appreciation of a photograph because you just have it available so easily now with your, with your camera, you just snap and then you have a picture and you take 50 of them at the same time and opposed to maybe someone who then actually goes out and seeks this wonderful, wonderful image that, that you do. Yeah, I think it's very interesting when you have that time to look at things. I lead photo expeditions. So people usually see my photographs in the magazines or they see a film, what I do, because I also do film and photograph mm -hmm. and they want to come. So I take them mm -hmm. on trips with me and I teach them photography. And it is so fascinating how little we walk for one of uh, one of the trips and what we photograph, where we stop. And to me, it's so interesting to see when you are with, uh, I mean, I do small groups, six, seven people, but everybody brings back so different images from the same thing. If we go to active volcanoes, I have two trips with 99% lava guarantee. The best pictures what people bring home, what they are often the most enthusiastic about, it's not necessarily the volcano exploding in all different colors it's probably a person standing in front of the volcano it's mm. probably just a lava fragment 
being completely red and glowing in the image. It's not often the very big picture is something very personal, what they see, what only they see. So it's really cool also to discover the world through the eyes of other photographers. I can I can imagine that uh, for you it's probably every time something new and inspiring to see what that person that you know brought along is finding interesting and you know maybe someone sees a little plant growing in the in a volcano and that has a certain meaning for that person and it never bothered you and you never find it very special to photograph this little plant and that person is upset with that and how, how is it when you look at people photography because obviously when there's a volcano you know nature things are things are blowing up and there's only so much story you can tell about that volcano i would imagine it's much different when you then go and actually also try to capture the stories that the people who who live around that volcano want to want to tell you and to capture that and image these emotions and also some of the history of that person how how does that work for you is that a a completely different process of, of photography and storytelling people versus then a nature? I have to say it's very different if I do actual journalism, if I go in straight after an eruption and if I photograph the people who are still busy with the, because they lost their houses, because they lost a family member, because then you're just like, oh, And you are on the side, you observe with your camera and you put it on very silent and you do click, click, click and you feel like an um, intruder in the privacy. So mm. I try to avoid those situations. Mm. I rather, I come in when people are on a day-to-day -day life, on a day-to-day -day basis with their volcano, which could mm. also be that it erupts all the time, that the house is covered in ashes. But um For example, this happened in Papua New Guinea for almost 15 years. The volcano completely destroyed all the houses. The people were always cleaning the houses. They still stay in that area. They did not leave because they were happy. They were coping with these environments. So for me, to capture when people are happy with the situation, it's so much easier because then they are You know, I had the kids, they were jumping in front of the volcano. They were really happy playing because they knew nothing else than alive with this volcano. So I have two different approaches. One is like the catastrophe approach where I try to be very silent on the side. Mm. And the other one is the um, um, approach where I'm living with the people, where I'm embedded in their culture, where I share house and loves. And this to me is very easy because I become friends with the people. I stay also for a long time. I never only stay like once for a couple of days. I always stay a long time. I often come back to the places and I become very friends with the locals. In fact, in Vanuatu around the volcano and in Papua New Guinea, there are several people who named their children after me. No, so, really? Yeah, it's really cool. Wow. So I'm always Ula, but I'm always Ula with the camera. So I'm, you know, I'm using the flip display and I talk mm -hmm. to people at the same time that I snap their pictures. I just look a little bit and they see and they don't have me like hiding behind the camera, but I'm always like a little bit like playing around with them. Often I give the camera also to the kids. They take photographs themselves and they like to play and I play with them. So this is how I get very good images when people trust me, when they know me, when they open mm -hmm. up and also when I give them photographs back because they always get photographs back from me. 
Yeah, I would imagine they would love to have these pictures then in their in their walls and actually, you know, see all these little kids playing. It's it's a nice memory. If they have walls. <laughs> Often they live in bush houses and not really walls, but they keep them in the, some sort of box or something. I'm pretty sure they they can find they can find a way to uh, to look at those memories because you just like you mentioned it a bit before about these people always having to leave their houses and being destroyed every you know 15 years and of course the question comes why don't they leave and yes they love their place but isn't it like wasn't it surprising in the beginning for you as well like okay what makes them always build up the house again and they know it's gonna it, it's gone and, and they love it and and this is what they know and they don't want to go anywhere else it's counterintuitive at least for you know people who build up houses and who have maybe a house in, in in Europe, they could not imagine that every 15 years that house burns down and they are happy and build it up again. And then that's amazing. That's really impressive. How, how did you perceive this mentality of, of the people? I was not understanding very well. But then I also looked at the alternatives. They did not have many alternatives. And they also like to stay at the ground where their ancestors were buried. Because mm -hmm. to them, it's really important to have that connection with the land. And this is something I um, did learn from them to respect their their roots and their deep connection with the dead. And uh, in fact, my first story for National Geographic, it had nothing to do with volcanoes, but with that connection with the dead people. Okay. So that 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 is for them one of the biggest anchor, why they don't really want to leave that place. Yes, I mean there are. There's also that there are. It depends on the country, but sometimes the alternatives are very limited. But mm. it is definitely one that is that they are connected to their land because this is where their ancestors are buried. And especially in Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu with the tribal cultures, it's very important that connection with the dead. Because they talk to them, they see them as still living and as part of their world. So it's very important to have that connection. Tell us a little bit, bit about the, the book you're writing, because this is also very much centered around the people, the people living there. It's it's not out yet. It's coming out in a in a in a couple of weeks, or by the time that episode airs, it's out. That's the good news for everyone. The listening that the book is out but tell us a little bit what what's the unique element of that because it's not only beautiful photographs but it is exactly this the storytelling um of the people right the book gives people a voice whose life is threatened by active volcanoes but who have that deeper connection almost a spiritual connection to the land and to me what i learned from those people is to be thankful for the life we have and to have that humbleness, the feeling of being humble towards the big force of nature. Wow. And you traveled again around the world, probably interviewing more than just the, the tribes in Vanuatu. So you went to like all kinds of different volcanoes or, or did you again focus on a certain certain area? There are 13 volcanoes all around the world. So it goes from the highest active volcano on the planet, which is the Ojos del Salado in Chile, and mm. almost 7,000 meters high. It goes wow. from there to uh, a volcano in the ice, Mount St. Helens. There's a glacier on top. And I went inside the glacier 
because they are glacier caves created by the hot smoke of the volcano. So it goes from the high mountains to the ice and, of course, also to hot places, to mm. the Africa, to the Niragongo. It uh, also goes not only to tribal places, we, we talked about a lot, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, but also to uh, Sicily, to Italy. Mm. And to see that people who are very similar to us, whose way of life is very similar to us, but in their mind, they are still a bit different. They, they they look into the sky in the morning, not like me. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> how how is that actually now when we see Italy and you know we we've seen some volcanoes erupting in the last decade as well in in Iceland, of course. Many of us still remember it was about twelve years ago. Mainly the flights weren't going. That was the biggest issue in the for northwestern Europe. But there were also volcanoes in in I think Indonesia or Malaysia that actually have significant effect on our. Um, on our world, on the climate, the ashes goes up and actually we can, you know, we can measure the effect on the other end of the world if volcanoes erupt. And there are these stories about these mega volcanoes in, in the Bay of Nepal, um, I think, that 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 could erupt. And how likely are these scenarios? Like how, how likely is it that we have another Pompeii um, in, in Italy or in anywhere in the world where these volcanoes actually erupt and then eradicate thousands and thousands of, of houses and entire cities. I would say it's just a matter of time because volcanoes, they don't have our time frame. I mean, volcanoes are, if it happens in 1,000 years, it happens in 2,000 and 10,000 or maybe in 100,000 years. I mean, of course, a volcano will erupt, but it will, of course, take its time because uh, the time geologically is very, very different. And in a geological terms, the time we have as human beings is like so small to compared to how long the earth is already here. It doesn't mm -hmm. give us justification to destroy nature, what we have, not at all. But in geological terms, everything is very, 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 um, you know, the earth is so old. Volcanoes have been always there. They will always be there. They will always erupt. So. It's just uh, in the big global scale, our time as humans, it doesn't matter that much. I want to say it's almost a beautiful way to end, but it's uh, also a sad way. <laughs> it sounds no, a little bit... <laughs> I think it's not sad because if we know that, um, you know, we're just guests here. So mm. we have to behave as guests. We should not destroy. We should always uh, try to do our very best to maintain the beautiful nature. But also we should be grateful that we have the time we get given. So mm. for me, that's what I try every day to be, as you say, to be grateful, to say thanks and uh, to enjoy the time and not to get caught up with unnecessary things. And um, that's what I love about photography, because when I photograph beautiful things, when I share my stories through photographs, then I hope I can also motivate people to look better around them and to also mm. enjoy life a bit more. Yeah, this is a wonderful motivation. Ola, thank you so much for your for your time today. Um, yeah, I've been really looking forward to uh, to talking to you and hearing all these um, the backstory of these pictures because yeah, when people look in, on your website or wherever they magazines where they find your stories, it's um, it's so interesting to hear then the backstory of how these 
pictures are created and what's in your mind when you when you pursue these um yeah i don't i don't know the word other than absolutely fascinating images of places in the world where probably no one goes or at least basically no one who who reads magazines and looks at pictures has probably been uh, 600 meters into a volcano uh, it's it's still crazy for me to uh, to imagine that you just uh, upsell yourself and rappel down 600 meters into a lava lake um but yeah i guess uh, a lot of people can can look at the images and see how you how you look when you when you've done that and everybody who listens to this podcast i'm sure they're also storytellers in some ways either you are a very good photographer yourself or you are a passionate photographer which is the same but we're all storytellers so with our images we can all achieve something if we work together we can uh, hopefully make the world a little bit better every one of us so please show your images make sure you share your wonderful images and mm. you have a message behind and uh, together we can make it work okay this is much better than the world will end with a volcano eruption and uh, <laughs> so I, I like that ending a bit better i have uh, one last question um and maybe yeah for you maybe the answer will come quite quickly because if you go out and you can only bring one item um one extremely valuable thing or item um what would that be my son your son his, his oh, name wow. is manuk after mm -hmm. an indonesian volcano he's named he has seen eight erupting volcanoes 45 countries He is four years old. He has never been sick and he starts to be a really, really good guide. I let him uh, guide some of my trips already and he takes good images. It's not a joke. At four years, I'm sure later on he will be very, very, very good and he loves it. So I think this is the best item I could bring on a trip because I'm sure he will do really well. That was Ola an absolutely incredible woman who is going out uh, jumping headfirst into erupting volcanoes just to get the perfect picture and such an inspiration on what it actually means to pursue your dream i just love her determination to work as a cook to learn from photographers to then after learning how to take pictures learn how to climb that every step of the way was just another puzzle piece for for the big dream and that is such an inspiration especially for people and me included who just like to jump from one thing to the other and uh, sometimes lack the grit and sometimes lack the determination to just keep going and keep going and eventually reaching the goal that is such a fascinating message and an inspiration to take away definitely another thing that you should take away is finding ola online because the pictures are out of this world and even though this is a podcast this is audio only um i now definitely definitely urge you to take out your phone and laptop or any device and look her up and find some pictures you can find her on instagram or on her own website ola loman this is u l l a l o h m a n n dot com where she published some of her best pictures and where you can also buy some of her books and she now has a new book as mentioned it's called volcan mention it's german for volcano 
humans, volcano people. So it's this wonderful mix about people and the volcanoes. It's full of images, so you will not be disappointed, even if your German is a little bit rusty. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for supporting this podcast for now over 19 episodes. This is absolutely wonderful and it's incredible to see that more and more people tune in and want to learn and want to hear from these wonderful and inspirational explorers and adventurers. This is now the last episode for our season two, but don't worry, season three is in the making. We will come out and you will get notified. So make sure that you follow the podcast on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you follow it. And also make sure that you follow on, us on social media, on Instagram, it's World Explorers Collective, or sign up to newsletter and you will be informed when new episodes are coming out. And in the meantime, you can read up on Ulla and on all the other explorers on our website, worldexplorerscollective.com, where we publish articles. And you can also find some of the images that I've mentioned in this episode from Ulla as well. So thank you so much for listening, for tuning in and being a supporter. And I hope we hear each other very soon. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.